Our second reading is from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. The word of the Lord. I remember um, a number of years back watching one of those news programs um, about uh, a particular subset of Japanese culture happening in Tokyo when there were downturns in the economy, like in 89 and 98. And actually, almost any time there's a downturn in the economy, what you will find in Tokyo, downtown Tokyo, is you will find parks and public libraries and similar things filled with Japanese men dressed to the nines in their work suits, but not going to any job. All of them are unemployed, but could not bring themselves to let their neighbors know or even to let their wives know sometimes. They would go off under the facade of heading off to work early and not return until the appropriate time, dressed like they did for years. Career and success were everything to them. Their greatest fear is to not have the job to maintain that status to uphold that image. The shame of unemployment is so great, they would rather suffer in the purgatory of a public library than be in the hell of public shame from their spouse, their family, or their neighbors. Most Japanese men, by numbers, don't worship God, but all clearly worship something. David Foster Wallace, author and agnostic, in his famous commencement speech at Kenyon College said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. This is at the core of what Christianity says is the problem with us and all humanity. Our root problem is a worship problem. Who or what is actually Lord of my life? In Romans chapter 1, we looked at this actually over the summer, as Paul is laying out his gospel message to the Romans in the book of Romans, he starts off by explaining the human problem. And the human problem, as he explains it, is a worship problem. He writes that every one of us suppress the truth, Because what can be known about God, even though it's plain to them, is something that we decide to suppress 
And we do this both in our observations and in our internal conscience. Paul's argument in verses uh, 19 and 20 is that we can observe externally that God exists, whether it's in the intricacies of a baby or the vastness of the creation, that there is reasonable evidence for a creator. And if that doesn't prove it, internally we have this thing called a conscience that nags at us. And in order to deny God, you actually have to darken your heart. So we suppress the, the observation and we suppress the conscience, and we suppress that God is God. And it's not just atheists Paul's talking about. We all suppress the truth about God on some level. Look, even those of us who call ourselves Christians believe in this God, we suppress the truth because we do it when there's an aspect of God's law that we just don't like. Or there's a part of our lives we simply don't want God to get near. We push that down despite what we know in our hearts. So Paul says they, which means we, verse 20, are without excuse. All of us by nature are apart from God and therefore under God's wrath. All of us do what's called the great exchange. We worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Now I'm not suggesting that all of you go out and worship trees. Some of you might. But all of us worship something, and our natural tendency is for it to be anything but God. Whether it's the things we observe, the life we ultimately want, or really just ourselves. Our tendency is to find a God that is not God and follow, bow down, and serve it. If it is not God, it won't be nothing. It will be something else or someone else. Everybody worships. And so as Paul says, the wrath of God is therefore being revealed. And how is the wrath of God being revealed? It's very strange. It doesn't say the wrath of God is being revealed by lightning bolts striking people left and right. Now, I'm not saying lightning bolts don't strike people left and right, but I wouldn't make the direct connection. Instead, it says the wrath of God is being revealed in this way. God gave them up to the lusts of their heart. Here's how God judges us, if you would. He says, do what you want. Go ahead. He gives us over to our heart's desires. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their heart. That word lusts, I want to look at. We have done this before, but I want to reiterate it. It's the Greek word epithumia. It comes from the Greek uh, prefix epi, which means on or over or controlling, above, and thumia, which means desire or want or longing or will. It's sometimes translated lust. It's sometimes translated our sinful selves, our flesh, but it can also be translated hunger. You can epithumia for water if you're very thirsty. It's not always a bad thing. Paul says, I desire to be with Christ. He epithumia is to be with Christ. That's a good thing. And Jesus, on the night that he is being crucified, has that final supper with his disciples, and he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. Jesus is saying, I have epithumiaed. I have epidesired. I have over and above desired 
to eat this meal with you to fulfill the Father's plan to give my life for you and all humanity. So it's not always a bad thing, but it is the main thing. It's the main thing we are living for at any given moment. We epithumia what we want most in our heart of hearts. It's what we're really living for. It's what we worship. It is our true God and our functional savior, what we turn to each day to give us meaning, hope, joy, peace. David Pallison in his article from years ago wrote, has something or someone besides Jesus taken title to your heart's trust, fear, and delight? It is the question bearing on the immediate motivation for our behavior, thoughts, and feelings. The motivation question is the lordship question. Who or what rules my behavior? The Lord or a substitute? Epithumia, what we want, our deepest desires reveal our true gods, our idols. You know, the Old Testament talked about idolatry a lot. And most of you, if you've grown up in the U.S., have actually not seen idols. If you've lived in India, gone to Nepal, you will see Hindu idols, these gods, these statues, right? Most of us, when we think of the word idol, we think of the golden calf or some sort of statue that people bow down to. But throughout the Old Testament, when Israel is accused of idolatry, it's very often talked about in terms like adultery and infidelity. The whole narrative of Hosea is that of a man who has an adulterous wife, and the parallel is supposed to be how Israel has gone after other gods, idols, if you would. So when you think about it in those terms, Old Testament idolatry carries along with it this idea of infidelity and unfaithfulness and adultery committed by Israel. And it's basically God saying, you have other loves besides me. You are going after other things besides me. And that's why the New Testament writers carry over the concept of Old Testament sin of idolatry with this New Testament term and idea of epithumia, or deep desire. What do you want and long for the most? That is your true God. We see this in Colossians 3, when Paul is talking to Christians and he's trying to make a difference between setting our hearts and minds on the things of God, verse 1 and 2, as opposed to setting our hearts and minds on the things of this earth. And while there's not heaven above and earth below, he does that sort of visual just for us to get a hold of it. And his idea is your heart and mind, your, your very core center should be set on God all the time. His priorities, his desires, loving him, serving him, and put to death that part of you that wants to serve anything here first. Put to death that desire, that evil desire, the covetousness, which is idolatry. And that word evil desire is that word epithumia. It's actually a, a parallel to coveting, wanting something you don't have. Idolatry. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul lays out something that's a little more easy to understand when he talks about money. Now, most of us have heard that idea of like, the love of money is the root of all evil or all kinds of evil or something like that. But really, there's this idea that money can be an idol. And most of us recognize that even if the, we don't recognize it in ourselves. 
But Paul actually lays it out pretty clearly there in verse, 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 and 10, when he says, the desire to be rich is a temptation, a snare, harmless destruction, ruin. That desire to be rich is epithumia to be rich. And look at the other terms that are associated with it in this passage. Besides epithumia, it's what you love, what you are craving, what you are setting your hopes on. An idol, your God, is what you love most, what you constantly crave, what you seek, what you set your mind on and put your hopes in. And that is what you worship. Our true God is whatever we live for and desire most. And as you've heard us talk about here, an idol can be anything. It's not just bad things. It's any, even a good thing that becomes ultimate in your life. So yes, it can be money or sex, but it can also be career or grades or your family, your children, your beauty, your body, your athletics, your reputation, your status, being thought highly of by your parents, being thought highly of by your kids. being wanted. It's that idea inside of us that says, if I get that, if I have that, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be somebody. Then I will matter. Then my life will be complete. And below the surface of these external surface idols like family or career or money are root idols, our core motivations that actually control why we do what we do the desire for power or approval or control or pleasure or comfort. For instance, money can be an idol to two different people motivated by two different things. So you can have money as an idol if you're the sort of person that throws your money around or if you're the sort of person that's very conservative with your money. The question is, what is your motivation for doing one or the other? You might be very conservative financially, very stingy with your money. Look down on people who spend everything and don't save enough. But really, you're turning your wealth, your money, your savings into your source of security. Your need for control drives you to worship money and what you have in the bank and to disdain people who can't be like you. And likewise, you can be incredibly wasteful and careless with your money, but maybe even generous. But the reason why you throw your money around is because you want people to like you. If you're always taking the check, if you're always welcoming people into your house for parties, if you're always buying great gifts, you might do it because you just love people or because you really need them to love you in order to feel good about yourself. The need for control or the need for approval can create very different ways of expressing the idol of money. But both can be there, deep-seated in your heart. Our idols are behind many of our vices and addictions, our unhealthy patterns in life, much of our relational problems. For instance, why do you lie? Now, 
You might say, I never lie, but the, the reality is you're going to lie at some point. How does this look? Oh, great. Why might you lie, though? Why might you tell a lie? Let's say you are telling lies because you want to remain in the inner circle in some organization or social friend group. Okay, so on one level, you're telling lies because somebody has caught you telling a rumor, spreading something, leaking something that you shouldn't have, and while it's true, you, ha you have to deny at all points. Nope, I didn't do that. I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't start that rumor. You want to stay on the inner circle in the organization or the social friend group. But even then, the reason why you lie beneath that, why you tell the lie, might be different for different people. You might be telling the lie because you were desperate to remain in the inner circle of that organization because that's the only place to have influence and power is what drives you. You might tell a lie because you have to remain in that circle of people and status is what's important to you. And if you're out of that group, you've dropped down a level. Or you might tell that same lie because you are desperate to be liked and to have approval. And if people think poorly of you, not only will you get kicked out, but you will lose everything that really matters to you. Idols are behind much of what drives us into brokenness and breaking relationships. A spouse can be an idol. So let's take a guy who's single, and all around him he sees people who are married, and he is desperate to have a wife. Inside he thinks, if I had a wife and a family, then I would be happy. Then I would be somebody. He looks around with jealousy at others and self-hatred because he can't seem to find a girl, dreaming if only, if only I could have a wife. And the problem is if he actually gets the wife, it'll be far worse for her, for sure, but probably also for him. No spouse can sustain the weight of eternal, spiritual, and cosmic expectations that we place on them when we make them our God. You will end up being a controlling and overbearing husband, seeking heaven from your wife. I'm going to let you guys in on a secret. Your wife will disappoint you. at least once. She is human. She is not a God. And she cannot be your savior. No person can. The problem with our idols is they spin out a whole set of assumptions and false narratives and values and demands that we buy into saying, I must keep serving this in order to get the life I am meant to have. Idols make promises, demands, and ultimately they enslave us. They make promises that say, if, if you get this, if you get there, then you'll be happy. If you just make it to that level in your career, that much in your savings, get into this college, then you'll be happy. Then you'll be secure. Then your life will matter. Those are all false promises that those idols cannot deliver. Ultimately, they start making demands on you. Just like any Old Testament idol, 
You have to offer sacrifices to your gods. If career is your god, if that's what you live for, you will at times sacrifice your family and your friends, your health, your spiritual well-being. In the end, idols are going to enslave you because you need more and more of whatever it is they give you. That's why something like pornography is an incredibly clear example of how this plays out. The dopamine rush that comes when you hit a pornographic image is great. But next time you need more. You have to go in further, worse things, more of it. It's not just pornography or drugs. Success, the A's, approval, has the same effect. It is enslaving because you can't get enough. You need more and more and more just to get the little bit of the hit. Finishing off David Foster Wallace's quote, he describes it this way, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, and they will, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid and will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. He goes on to say, look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil, it's that they are unconscious. Unconscious. They are the default setting. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what's what you're doing. Everything else we worship, this is me, not him, Everything we else we worship demands performance, harder work, sacrificing, more. And every other God we turn to will fail us. It will not give us what we're truly looking for and really need. So my question is, what competes for your heart's love and trust? Are you even aware? How do you figure out what it is? Well, one way to figure out what you actually trust is what is your, what is your mind turned to when it's free to think about anything, free to wander? Your daydreams. Are you spinning out scenarios for career advancement? Fantasizing about sex? Or the house that one day you will get? What do you think about easily when your mind is free to wander? What is your, another way to think about it, your greatest nightmare? What keeps you up at night, anxious, mulling? What conversations do you return to again and again and again? What scenarios do you replay with great fear? It's in your daydreams and your nightmares that you will find your idols. It's also in your strongest emotions. Not just anger, fear, depression, and guilt, but 
inordinate and disproportionate anger, fear, depression, guilt. Example is this. Being rejected by a friend, having a friend hurt you, is a terrible thing. But if you spiral into incredible grief and depression and all you can think about is revenge, if you think my life is not worth living, if I don't have their love and acceptance, it's possible you've made friendship an idol. Or build your life on your competence at work. If that's your root descriptor of why your life matters, because you are excellent, precise, and competent at work. And if someone suggests they think maybe you made a mistake, what happens? You will be livid, so indignant inside, and you will get vicious. You might even respond disproportionately to their question. Did, did you do this? Is this right? To the extent that your career and your work and your excellence at work is where you build your identity and your worth, to that extent, you will over-respond to that person with just absolute rage. Why? Because your source of identity and meaning is being threatened by their questioning. You are being threatened. If something we care about is being threatened, we will fight for it. But if an idol of ours is being threatened, we will murder for it. You can find your idols in your daydreams and nightmares and your disproportionate emotional responses. But how, how do we overcome? How do we overcome our epi-desires? We can't. We can't. We cannot unseat the idols of our heart on our own. A little bit of effort or willpower, or even me just kind of describing them, and you're like, okay, I now know that what I really do is I care about money and control, or I really care about what people think about me, my reputation, that's really what matters, or being in the friendship circle is what matters. I will stop doing that. You will stop doing it for about two days. If you have really strong willpower for three or four, but on your own, you do not have the power to unseat the idols of your heart. Usually what happens is we simply exchange one idol for another. It's why one woman who was going through a whole series of abusive relationships because she was desperate to have the approval of men and would lay herself out basically for them, when she came to faith in Christ and then ended up seeing a counselor, and the counselor suggested, you know what? You have made men your idol. You have turned to them for, your appro for approval and acceptance. You need to find a career. And she realized what was being said there. You were just trying to get me to switch finding my identity in men to finding my identity in my career. And that's exactly what you'll do. On your own, you will simply switch your idols. No, we need God to break in and unseat the idols of our heart's trust. The great exchange I talked about earlier in Romans 1, it is that we 
exchange the truth about God for a lie, and in a sense, then God exchanges us. He says, okay, I will give you over to the desires of your hearts. Do you know what hell is? Hell is the eternal trajectory of a life that is turned away from God. It is God saying, I give you the freedom to follow your heart's desires to do what you want apart from me forever. We are by nature apart from God, and God says, by nature you can continue if that's your choice. But a greater exchange happened 2,000 years ago, didn't it? On the cross, Jesus, who was perfectly obedient, was given over, experiencing apartness in our place. Jesus lived the life we cannot live. He died the death we deserve to die so that we can have the life he deserves, eternal communion with God, so that God can be seated on the throne of our heart and our hearts can be filled, not just now, but always. We need the good news of Jesus Christ to sit on our hearts. In Christ, God offers us the identity and the meaning and the hope and the love that we seek in everything else. So on a very basic practical level, although it's not going to be as practical as you want, you need to dig deeper, uncovering your false motives, your surface idols, and your root idols. Not just saying, oh, I need to avoid lying, but why do I ever lie in the first place? And you need to admit and lay them before God and say, God, I keep serving other things besides you. And then we need to look to Jesus on the cross again and again, letting his love for you, his grace for you, overwhelm and enthrall you. Capture your heart, if you would. And then you need to do that same thing again and again and again. It takes time and thinking and prayer and actually being connected to other people to expose our idols and let the gospel sink in and unseat what is sitting on the throne of our hearts. Keller, in one of his articles on this, said, we will never change unless we come to grips with the particular characteristic way in which our hearts are resisting the gospel and continuing our self-salvation projects through idolatry. Whether you have been a Christian your whole life or an atheist your whole life, the depth of your soul need is not meant to be satisfied by being good and religious, by a perfect career, by family, by friends. Nothing else we turn to or put our hopes in or seek will satisfy the depths of our soul need. It will not satisfy us ultimately, and it cannot satisfy us eternally. And as St. Augustine put it very clearly, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. To the extent that you epi-desire and fully rest in Christ and his finished work on the cross, to that extent, your heart will finally be at rest too. Let us pray. Lord, in Jesus, you offer us 
the life that we are seeking in so many other sources. Give us hearts, eyes, ears to see the idols of our life, to lay them before you, and to bow before the cross, recognizing that in your Son, you offer us everything we could ever want. Lord, may you capture our heart's imagination and our deepest loves. Amen.